proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr. I am your host, as well as a pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have Luke Potter. He's a Presbyterian pastor and church planner for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. He's planting in South Bend, Indiana. That's correct, South Bend, Indiana, the home of Notre Dame. The church is called New City, and he has a Ph.D. in philosophy. He graduated from Notre Dame and teaches as an adjunct professor there. He uh, teaches philosophy and religion, usually the upper-level courses. So uh, this is pretty exciting to have you on here, Luke. How you doing, man? Doing great, man. How you doing? Good. Uh, could you just maybe give my listeners just a quick intro to who you are and what you've been up to? Yeah. Um, I uh, So I guess in some ways, most important things about any pastor, I'm married to a wonderful and brilliant uh, woman named Jen. She's got a bunch of degrees. She's a nurse uh, now in town. Uh, she studied theology as an undergrad and then did some graduate work in bio and uh, decided to not to pursue uh, med school, but instead to do uh, nursing, uh, largely so we could stay here uh, in South Bend. And we have two kids, uh, Jack and Rosemary. Uh, Jack's like two and a half years old. Um, and Rosemary was just born this summer. Congratulations. Uh, I, yes, uh, it's been great. Um, so I, I came to faith uh, pretty early. My dad was a pastor. That's relevant to um, some of my story as to how I got into confessional uh, theology. Um, so I grew up in the church all the time, and uh, I, I went to college early. I went to grad school. Uh, I guess it'd be I went to grad school early, um, and really quickly knew I wanted to do. Um, exactly what I'm doing now. I wanted to both do pastoral ministry and I wanted to have uh, a foot in the academy uh, teaching. So some uh, friends of mine, guys that kind of discipled me, did campus ministry out east at Yale and I got involved with them through Campus Crusade uh, stuff when I was an undergrad and they helped to kind of solidify that vision as being uh, worthwhile, strategic, difficult, and something you should do if you can. Um, there are relatively few voices. So um, I went to Notre Dame for my PhD because uh, if you're a Christian in philosophy, or at least <laughs> uh, 15 or 20 years ago, if you were a Christian in philosophy, there really was only one place that you wanted to go, uh, Notre Dame. So when I got in, um, it was kind of a no-brainer. And I started doing pastoral work really there. I did youth ministry uh, for a few years and then became an associate pastor um, at one of the area churches and for maybe six years, I think, there, five or six years, and then uh, planted a new city. So I've never really 
been um, outside of this general geographical area. Uh, so in some ways, it was a very natural and easy fit, um, understanding personality types and the like. And Notre Dame's a, um, a wonderful university. I love it to death. But it is a difficult university to do ministry in from the outside. They don't have a very, uh, you know, they don't, they don't allow uh, Protestant student groups, um, you know, Navigators, InterVarsity, Campus Crusade. They're, they're not allowed on campus. Um, and so the only way to do ministry uh, there was to be kind of an insider. And so uh, being a grad student and then um, there was a, a year or so where I had a job with uh, the Center for the Philosophy of Religion on campus and now as an adjunct kind of keeps my, um, keeps that door, um, keeps that door open. So how, how did you enter the confessional theology branch? Um, is, is that, is that part of your heritage? You said it was kind of a uh, part of your story. No, no, it wasn't part of the uh, story at all. My dad was ordained in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and um, theologically, from what I can tell, theologically, it just kind of depends on where you are in the country. There might be some places in the country where it's a little more friendly to Reformed-leaning types, and there are other places in the country where it's a little more hostile uh, to that. But my dad went to the CMA, I think, largely because he was an evangelist, uh, kind of passionate about evangelism. Um, he was a pastor, but that's what he loved doing uh, in the pastorate. And so I would say, although my dad had a lot of books in his library and he let me use those, at, there was sometime when I was a teenager, he basically gave me his old library. Um, he's now a public school teacher uh, in the inner city in Fort Wayne, Indiana, about two hours from here or so. Uh, and so when he left the ministry, he kind of gave me his library, but he, he had a much more kind of pragmatic approach to ministry. And so I, I definitely had that. I wanted to share the gospel with people. So I went, I got involved in Campus Crusade really early and like the view of the church and confessional, like it, that those were not things that, uh, were high, at least at the time, and at least in my area, those weren't all that high on the Campus Crusade folks' uh, radar. And I was a philosophy major. I had some other majors at the time, but I ended up just graduating with a philosophy major. So I ended up spending a lot of time reading stuff. And um, I didn't know it when I was a young guy that some of the most important theologians that I was reading, they were reformed and confessional, but I didn't really associate them with that. And, uh, I kind of found my way in. I was a philosopher by training and I only knew of Calvin secondhand. And from what I knew of him, I hated him in, in philosophy. Uh, they're really powerful and prominent, uh, Christian theologians. None of them are, um, right at the time, none of the major, uh, philosophers were all that friendly to Calvinist soteriology. So a couple of the main names in Reformed uh, Christian philosophy, Al Plantinga, who I studied with and rock climbed with here in Notre Dame. Uh, he's one of those guys, but he's, uh, he's a Molinist, uh, which is a view about God's providence that's not consistent with traditionally Calvinist and Reformed uh, soteriology. So he's kind of famous for his advocacy of the free will defense and the problem of evil. So in a lot of ways, although the reformed tradition was viewed, uh, with 
I mean, I mean, people had a pretty friendly view to it because of guys like Plantinga and Nick Wolterstorff, other guys who came out of Calvin. Uh, the details of kind of Calvinist theology weren't thought of as being uh, all that philosophically defensible. And so I started, I read Calvin because I hated him at the time. I mean, I, I, knew, I knew him as kind of a villain and uh, really cold and had this authoritarian view of God. And uh, I read the Institutes and it blew me away. I mean, you see, I, I think I was very much typical of guys that I've since uh, encountered who know of Calvin only by reputation. And then when you actually sit down to read the Institutes, I do think that's the best way to enter uh, Calvin. Uh, through his kind of major work, the latest edition, um, the final kind of edited uh, version of it. Um, was there a specific I, portion of the of of, yeah. of the? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, well, so the tone the tone was what struck me. I mean, of course, there are lots of pages of. Uh, I mean, he he really there's a lot of um, critical engagement with uh, theologians, and there's lots of places where I think you could easily delete a handful of pages, but the tone was so warm. I was really blown away and kind of attracted, but it really was, uh, like book four, 17 and following, uh, on the sacraments that really drew me in. Um, and again, you know, as a philosopher, you get, you spend a lot of time reading guys like Aquinas. Aquinas makes a big deal about mystery. And even now, I don't know, I could put my, my finger on it in a really fine uh, grained way, but for Aquinas, every time I would read him talking about mystery, it felt like a cop-out. It felt like just as things were getting difficult philosophically, you pull that out, and it seemed like uh, such a cheat. And with Calvin, uh, mystery seemed like the only the only rational reaction, and he clearly wasn't dodging bullets. And uh, when I got to him on the sacraments, it seemed um, I was very drawn to the uh, to the overall picture of how he sees um, the spirit being active. There is lots of mystery going on uh, there, but there's plenty to understand, and it's enriching. And that's incredible uh, story. Uh, just to share your journey, I mean, the the idea that um, somebody you hate is the very individual that you, God uses <laughs> to draw you over. All right, it's the story yeah. of probably most of us in oh, various yeah. aspects of. Uh, our own shortcomings in that, that God uses to uh, <laughs> blindside us by. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the um, the idea of planting a church in South Bend, Indiana, and the home of, you know, that notorious school there, the, the University of Notre Dame. And um, so you, you went there and studied philosophy, and here you are, you want to dig in and, and, and root in... Um, and plant a church. I mean, where does that describe a little bit of that journey and that, uh, that your heart pulling there? Yeah. I mean, I, my dad, so the idea of church planting when I was growing up, it wasn't the sexy thing that it is now, especially in kind of reformed evangelical uh, circles. And so, but it was, my dad wanted to plant a church. He never did, but he was an evangelist. And there was a, a point in time when I think he was really close to doing it with another guy whose wife got really sick. And so he had to pull out, pull out. So it never happened. But conversations about church planting and their importance and the idea that church planting didn't only have to come out of a, uh, a context of dissatisfaction or frustration with another church, but the idea that it could be natural and good in a way to see real church uh, growth 
uh, by conversion. Uh, that was something I'm thankful to say was uh, in the atmosphere uh, growing up. So it was in the background, I'd say. Yeah, so it was kind of early grad school. I, I knew I was doing pastoral ministry. I was doing it at the time already. Um, but in the early 2000s, one of the guys who was discipling me, his wife was in uh, New York. It was in Manhattan. She worked for NBC uh, in the late 80s. And had he so in the early 2000s, before he was a household name, really, I, one of these guys from Yale turned me on to uh, Keller and it was kind of reading other things. So I think one of the most important things I read right as it was, I think it was right when it was coming out, um, was the Redeemer Church Planting Manual. And really quickly, I started to realize that I didn't just want to be a pastor, but wanted to plant. And these other convictions that I had, so like my, um, some of my ministry heroes, Charles Simeon and Thomas Chalmers were, uh, guys who were in the pastorate, but also maintained a presence in the university. Uh, Simeon wasn't a professor, but he held different kind of um, different kind of positions. And really show, I mean, Simeon in some ways more than Chalmers showed just how strategic it can be to have a pastoral ministry in a really strategic university location. So Simeon was for 50 years a pastor in Cambridge. And had his fingers in all kinds of pies all over the place in the world scene as a result of his ministry. Thomas Chalmers, you know, most people know of him because of this one sermon, Expulsive Power of a, a New Affection. But most of his substantive work was really hammering out how to do parish ministry among the poor. Lots of stuff that in the conservative Presbyterian world we're thinking about now. Guys like Brian Fickert and Randy Neighbors down in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. The, the Chalmers Center that uh, Fickert uh, started at Covenant uh, College. Uh, Chalmers was doing this in the first half of the 19th century. And so um, it really, my those kind of models for me, Simeon and, and Chalmers, made it seem really natural that not only should I want to pastor, would pastoring be good in South Bend, but church planting uh, could be really strategic. We didn't have a church. There were there's a couple of churches that have a, a big university contingent, a big university presence, and there are other churches that are planted into poor in the poor parts of the city. But um, there weren't churches that were doing both, and for various reasons, those are things that I care pretty deeply uh, about. And so, I don't know, 2004, 2005, it was officially on the radar and a a pretty serious way to plant and to plant here. Now, what are some of the more difficult challenges that you face planting in a, um, you know, in the shadow of of the University of Notre Dame? I think the most challenging thing about being in Notre Dame has to do with the um, undergraduate culture there, where you've got a lot of students. I mean, the vast majority of these students are were baptized Catholic. Uh, I don't have the I don't have current up to date stats, but I think when I first got here, something like at least eighty percent, maybe even ninety percent, or something of the undergrad admits were baptized Catholics, and so they're working to make sure that this is a Catholic institution. Um, so it's not like there's a huge Protestant uh, population, but there are dorm masses held in all the dorms and every day, and so basically no one goes off campus uh, to go to church, and so. 
um, there's very little encouragement to be involved in local church uh, Christian community that can make uh, ministry there pretty difficult. There's a lot of nominal uh, Christianity. Um, there isn't any Christian school. It's not just because it's a Catholic institution. I was, I'm also an adjunct at Bethel College uh, here in town, which is a small Christian uh, school. And there's tons and tons of nominal Christianity there. And it's kind of associated with the missionary church, um, which is, you know, a grab bag evangelical denomination in a lot of ways, but there's plenty of nominal Christianity to go around. Uh, and so I don't know that the, it being Notre Dame makes that worse, but it certainly doesn't make it easy. Sure. And, and I got to believe, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with, uh, like you said, a, a, a large nominal, um, Christian culture. And so there's a lot of time spent, um, just trying probably to, to cultivate the ground and just what is real Christianity. I mean, I got to expect that if you're going to work in a culture, you have to know it. And there's going to be specific issues that you're going to be up against um, just from the, the Catholic doctrine itself, but also probably some misnomers by uh, bringing your, your, your Presbyterian or not even that, your, your Protestant background into it. And maybe you can give us some light on what are some things that maybe we Protestants get wrong about Catholics that um, maybe help or maybe create new hurdles in the context ministry there? You do have to know your context. So I, Notre Dame, I lo- one of the reasons I love Notre Dame, there are lots and lots of reasons why I love Notre Dame, um, it, it just isn't very Marian in its worship. So Mary is not a huge, I, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with a student about Marian, uh, about Marian theology. And I do think, uh, having said that, it is one of the things that I think Christians, uh, Protestants can get wrong. And, and you think that comes from the fact of the Hail Mary, um, you know, the, I mean, my wife as an ex-Catholic can still quote the, you know, Hail Mary full of grace. <laughs> you think that's where it's rooted is just this idea that, well, they're praying to Mary, they make too much of her or? No, I don't think so. And this is, so I'd say, um, you know, the general approach for doing evangelism anywhere, knowing your context anywhere, it really does help here. There's a section in uh, Eckhart Schnabel's Paul the Missionary, where he, he just looks in detail at Paul's uh, discourse in Athens in Acts 17, and he shows like there's a handful of things that Paul points on, and Schnabel calls them like points, points of contact or points of agreement or something like that. And, uh, and then he shows that as soon as he does that, he, he lays out some points of uh, disagreement, uh, points of conflict. And in some of those places, like the first three or four, they're point for point. He shows something he can agree with about how certain people conceive of God and then criticizes that, something that people you can affirm about the uh, an attack on idols, but then how they conceive of God. So looking for points of contact and then uh, points of disagreement, both is really important. And when it comes to Mary, I think a, a standard objection might just be uh, might be rooted in kind of a praying to saints, praying to Mary is kind of religious superstition. But understanding that you know that that doctrine does come. There's a it's rooted in some good theology. I mean, uh, Catholicism is very very concerned to make sure that we understand you're either going to be aligned with Adam or you're going to be aligned with uh, Jesus. 
And that's absolutely a concern for Paul, and that's absolutely a concern for Reformed theology. You're going to be joined with one of these two guys. And uh, I think that's a really good concern and something that when I was growing up, I never really heard about heard about that, something confessionalism gets right, something Catholicism gets right. But Catholicism also, like they see parody. So Adam is kind of the first, the first man, and Jesus is the second man, and we're going to be aligned with one of them. But Adam was also, he had a wife, uh, Eve, and so Mary is in some ways the new Eve. And I can kind of understand how that how that works. I, I mean, for one thing, I'm a philosopher, so I appreciate when things are nice and neat and when there are parallels that play themselves out. Uh, I think the problem comes that or one of the one of the major problems uh, that comes up for me in Marian devotion, which, again, is just not that big of a deal in Notre Dame. They just don't make a whole I don't it doesn't it's not part of the spirituality at Notre Dame, whereas there are other Anglo Catholic parts of the country where Marian theology is everywhere. So it's not that it's not that it's this huge thing here, but when I'm talking to people, when it does come up and it doesn't come up as a problem or an issue very frequently, I just try to show that, look, Mary, I think for a lot of Catholics who care about that, Mary is a softer, easier she, uh, person to deal with. She's, she's just there's a warmth and a, an attraction uh, that you have with Mary that you don't with Jesus. And so I just talk about how I I want to lay out a picture of Jesus that shows I get all of that warmth. I don't, I don't necessarily want to attack the view as much as uh, show a Jesus who's every bit as warm, every bit as ready uh, to, to listen. And so kind of going, going right to, to Hebrews and the, media, the mediator that we've got. That's good. That's good. I want to turn the page of our discussion, though, and kind of um, jump over to another cultural issue specifically for New City. And that's the context of people that you're reaching, which uh, are, are the urban poor. And a lot of times when we think about the surrounding area of Notre Dame, we're thinking all the academic and, and, yeah. and, and the books and all that, and we're missing a whole context <laughs> of people. Could you share yeah. a little bit of that um, vision with us? Uh, Notre Dame has a strained relationship with the city of South Bend. Uh, Notre Dame is kind of a closed, kind of a gated community, and um, it, it gets bigger, it buys, buys up more and more land, and so there are parts of the city that can kind of view it with suspicion, even though in, if you're in South Bend, you are a Notre Dame football fan, you can still have a kind of strained relationship with uh, the university. And right outside the university's door are really poor uh, parts of the city. So the wealthy parts that you were just describing, those are the suburbs. Those aren't actually, for the most part, aren't even in uh, South Bend. And so it's uh, South Bend is, for Indiana anyway, it's like one of the, it's in the top five most diverse cities. The poverty rate's high. When I got here, we had some of the worst public schools in the country. So this this is, you know, 13, 14 years ago. So I'm sure that we've climbed up a little bit. But we had some really underperforming schools, all kinds of issues that were, um, that are heartbreaking and they're right outside the door of the university. And in some ways it was coming to Notre Dame. I mean, I cared about that stuff in a, in a vague way. I was involved in a church plant when I was an undergrad and it was in a poor, uh, a rural poor, um, city. And so it was, so I kind of cared about these things, but it was some of the students who were involved in Catholic social action at Notre Dame that really opened my eyes to just how prevalent it was. And I, I mentioned being attracted to 
uh, Keller early on, kind of in the early 2000s, uh, one of the things that I did, Keller at the time hadn't written any books, and I didn't just want to listen to his sermons or whatever. I wanted to know who were the guys who kind of shaped his vision for the city. And so I read a lot of Harvey Kahn, and he, you can get some some of his old classes on the New Testament and the uh, poor and the Old Testament and the poor that were really formative and foundational for how I thought about the importance within ch- the local church's uh, ministry and mission to being involved in those contexts. Just a couple other things as you, what specifically are you doing in the sense of, 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 of ministering there? What does that look like day to day? You got to be willing to fail doing pastoral ministry in this kind of, kind of a context because this, I, what I found just by, by experience was the way that I, the churches that I were, I was involved with had a really program heavy, uh, approach to ministry. And that doesn't work uh, all that well in the uh, poor context. So in some ways this has evolved, but, um, we're two blocks from the projects. And so, uh, I basically every week, um, I'm there at a little coffee shop trying to meet and talk to, uh, people establishing relationships is incredibly uh, heavy. There's a, a high degree of willingness and openness to talking uh, about spiritual things, about the gospel. We're in a pretty heavily African American uh, context. I've never, I've never encountered an atheist uh, in the projects uh, yet. So you're starting in a very different place than you are with the university crown. So um, just spending a lot of time hanging out with guys is crucial. Um, every week we do Bible clubs for kids and we started doing this. There's a way of doing this. That's not healthy and that's really paternalistic. So you got to be careful. But one of my church planting uh, coaches is a guy called Randy neighbors who in the Presbyterian church in America, another conservative Presbyterian uh, denomination, it's kind of the state, the staple ministry that he found 40 years ago in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, to reach and evangelize in the poor and then to walk with uh, these young kids, to walk with them for years and decades uh, after the fact. Uh, walking with them uh, was how you saw kind of stable Christian families emerge and how you could see like young kids that you walk with for years and years and disciple them out of uh, poverty and then you send them off to seminary, get them trained and they become Christian workers and some of them will uh, come back to those kinds of contexts. We're ne- right next door to a homeless uh, shelter, a homeless ministry. And so, you know, I became friends with the director of men's ministry there. And every so often they'll have me teach classes, uh, teach a class on the local church and uh, why it's important. And then inviting those folks to come uh, to New City. And, and as you look at the grander scale of what your hopes are for New City, I mean, just kind of cast a vision for us and what you hope yeah. to see. And you would say, hey, this this is bigger than the dream I dreamed. But, man, it's, <laughs> it's all me. What, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, there's part of the dream that we're starting to see now. We want to disciple academics, people who are involved in the university. So we have lots of grad students and, you know, we have lots of students who will come in and we want to nurture and disciple them, give them a vision of the importance of the local church, ground them in uh, the historical formed uh, tradition. And then when they're graduated and they take positions at, you know, Oklahoma State or Seattle Pacific or wherever, you know, wherever they go uh, from here, we want them to go not just 
having nurtured their Christian faith, but having given them given them a view of uh, mission and vocation that shows how God can use them in the academy as they leave. And in some ways, we see that now. That's I think not a that's not an easy thing to do in the grand scheme of our vision. That's the easiest uh, the easiest and most attainable part. Uh, so we actually just sent kind of our this May was kind of our first graduation year, and we sent out. Uh, half a dozen folks who are had enough to take teaching positions, and that's what we hope uh, will happen. We keep in contact with them. Um, some of them haven't transferred memberships, so they're still members. So we still pray for them, you know, Sunday mornings and and the like. The more difficult and the more long-lasting vision of New City, because we care about South Bend, the city, and the part of the South Bend, the part of the city of uh, South Bend where we're planted, is a is a four-party town. The other part of our, our church ministry is very transitory. You get students who come in, you get faculty members, visiting faculty members who will come in for a year, come in for a couple of years, be here for five years or whatever, and then they're gone. Um, the rest of our vision is centered on neighborhoods and people who are going to be here long term. And in the poor context, that really is a long term vision. Uh, normal church plants will take three to five years to become self-sustaining financially and uh, whatever a church in the poor is going to take seven to ten. It's easily double the normal uh, length for viability. But one of the reasons that it takes so long isn't just, you know, you're reaching poor people who don't have money enough to support a, a local pastor or something. That's part of it. But one of the reasons why it takes so long is because it takes that long to. It'll often take that long to decide, evangelize, disciple, and train the next generation of leaders. And so one of the guys I'm doing an evangelistic Bible study with now. Um, I, I'm praying like crazy for this guy to come to faith. And he's the first non-Christian that I've been able to convince to do a Bible study uh, with me for a long, like week in and week out. But I'm looking at that guy, not just as a guy I'm trying to evangelize. I want him to be a leader. He, he specifically, but also that kind of guy, that kind of woman uh, in our neighborhood. That's who I want to see leading in New city seven to 10 years from now. So I think, Churches that are located in the projects are uh, gospel preaching churches in the projects. They're harder to come by. You know, it's a violent part of the city. Drugs are an issue. No one wants to live there because the schools tend to be much worse. Uh, it's, it's a difficult place. And I'd say when there's blood, sweat, and tears coming out of my prayer life, more often than not, it's tied to that part of the church's vision. And that's what I want to see. I want to see some of these kids not just come to faith in Bible clubs, but join the church, be discipled, stay in the city, and become uh, leaders in the church, leaders in the community, and then also just folks in the neighborhood uh, want to see that same uh, that same kind of thing happen. So church leadership is a big part of it. And the last thing I'd say is just, um, I'm, this is relatively new, but I mentioned early on, Thomas Chalmers being one of my ministry heroes and models, and he was such a hardcore proponent of parish ministry, and um, where parish ministry is just a, a focus on ministry that takes geography really seriously. So you really want to minister to your immediate geographical context. And I would love to see our folks start to view, and and the future members of New City start to view their immediate neighborhood and neighborhoods as their parish. I mean, really, it's just a Christian view of hospitality, loving the stranger, not just loving you know the people that you're in church with, but um, your neighborhood, the people that you see day in and day out, actually taking the time to get to know those neighbors and then love them well and at the heart of loving our neighbors well, sharing Jesus with them. 
Luke, I really appreciate the time we've had today. Um, you, you've given me some good insight, uh, you know, going back to the Catholic conversation we had earlier, but also just hearing your heart for the poor and the desire to see leaders raised up. I think so often we, we don't expect enough of what God can do, specifically uh, uh, yeah. you know, places like the poor urban. And if we truly believe in the power of re- re- uh, redemption, the power of the resurrection, um, we should have a greater expectation for him to raise up leaders. There shouldn't be any glass ceilings or anything like that. So That's right. Yeah, That's right. Really appreciate your heart on that. And to our listeners, we'll say uh, uh, thank you for your time and see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.